Good morning, faith family. If you got a Bible, go to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah 3 is where we'll be here in just a few moments. Uh, we've been uh, in a series the past few weeks called The Runaway, and we've been looking at what is really the outrageous, the outrageous, mind-blowing love of God, uh, a grace that really boggles the mind but transforms the life. As we get back into Jonah chapter 3 and pick up here in verse 4, and would you please stand for the honor of reading God's Word. Jonah chapter 3, verse 4. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. And the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and removed his robe and covered himself with sackcloth, sat in the ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Um, God, I've asked um, in every service, and I ask again in this one, do something supernatural. Meet us here as I seek to faithfully proclaim your word and do what only you can do. Do hear what you did in Nineveh. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I over-repented. At least that's what he told the Wall Street Journal. It was an interview that I read between the Wall Street Journal and a former megachurch pastor who publicly admitted to using meth and being involved with a male prostitute. And when the news came out, he wrote a letter to his church, and he described himself as, quote, a deceiver and a liar. He described his sin as, quote, repulsive and dark. But a few months after that confession, he reconsidered. He said, you know, looking back, I think I over-repented. He said, truth is, I was forced to feel bad. He blamed the consequences of his behavior on a witch hunt from his former church members. And he said that those pastors and counselors that were speaking into his life, trying to help him heal, he said, I don't even need them anymore. In fact, he even started a new church in his barn. 
And when the Wall Street Journal asked him, why were you so eager to get back into ministry to start this new church, here's what he said. He said, quote, Tiger Woods needed golf. Michael Vick needed football. And I need to be leading a church. Now, friends, I share that with you not because I am trying to comment on the fall of a Christian leader. I am not trying to pick on some sins and ignore others. In fact, I am not even trying to criticize a fallen man. I share that with you because that is exactly the kind of tendency you and I have when it comes to our sin. You see, I am preaching today in a culture obsessed with self-help and self-esteem that encourages us to gloss over, ignore, and minimize as much as possible rebellion to God. Sin, if it even exists, isn't repulsive and dark. It's a lapse of judgment. A.W. Tozer says it this way, we have learned to live with unholiness and have come to look upon it as a natural and expected thing. Hear me, faith family, until we see our sin for what it really is to the point that it brings us to repentance. We will not see a revival of God's saving grace in this place. We must see our sin in light of what it is. That's exactly what had to happen in Jonah's life, isn't it? And that's exactly this morning what happens in Nineveh. Verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Jonah gives Nineveh what you've been hoping for for the past year and a half, an eight-word sermon. Wouldn't that be awesome? I come up here, just give you eight words, and then go sit down. I'll make a deal with you. I'll preach like Jonah if you'll respond like Nineveh. Deal? <laughs> Shake on it. It's actually only five words in Hebrew. It appears, and Jonah probably said more than this, but it appears incomplete, doesn't it? There's no mention of God's mercy. There's no mention of grace. There's no mention of forgiveness. It is simply this, 40 days and you're all going to die. Do you remember a few years ago when churches did that whole 40 days of purpose campaign? Do you remember that? This is 40 days until destruction. I don't think Rick Warren's going to write that book. How many of you have heard of the book of your best life now? This is... Your wrath-filled life soon. <laughs> Lifeway Christian Bookstore across the street ain't selling that book. It's almost like, you know, a year and a half, two years ago when I came to do the trial weekend. Do you remember that? When you were trying to decide, are we going to make this redneck our pastor or not? <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> we're not taking a revote, by the way. 
But it would be like me coming here on that day, on that Sunday, and say, turning your Bibles to Revelation 19, and there was a white horse, and the man on that horse was death, and I just started preaching judgment, judgment, judgment. If you don't repent, this place is coming down. I don't think I would have received very many votes that day. There's a few of you that would be like, that would have been awesome, right? <laughs> But you see, I mean, we don't tend to think about messages of God's judgment being very popular. It seems to be incomplete. And so when we read verse 4, we kind of think, I know how this is going to turn out. Jonah's going to be laughed at. This guy is going to be rejected. And given Nineveh's history, he'll probably be killed. Because this is a lot like going into the Sudan with Bible in hand, saying, Jesus is Lord, and if you don't repent, this place is coming down. How do you think that would work for you? Which is why, when we read the next phrase of verse 5, we ought to be amazed. And the people of Nineveh believed God. What? Who? Nineveh? Do you remember, friends, a few weeks ago when I quoted the prophet Nahum who described Assyria of which Nineveh is the capital, and he said it is a place full of lies, it is a place full of bloodshed, it is a place full of wickedness, and yet Nineveh believed God? It is sad that when we think about the book of Jonah, we think the miracle is a fish. That's not a miracle to me. This is a miracle. The salvation of Ninevites is a whole lot more outrageous than a fish. How do you account for this? You got to, listen, I, I know, my, I don't, you don't think like I think, and that's a good thing. But when I read things like this, I think there, there is no rational explanation for and Nineveh believed God. Like I stop in my study and I think, this doesn't make sense. And I can only come up with two reasons to account for why this happened. And here's the first. It's the Word of God. Do you remember back in verse 2 I showed you last week? Notice what God tells Jonah. Go call out against it the message that I tell you. In other words, Jonah, I don't really need your authority. I don't even need your input. What I need from you is to go be obedient and tell them what I tell you to tell them. Did you get all that? The authority isn't Jonah's. The authority is the Word of God that does the work of God. Which means this, friend, don't tell me God can't use you. Well, God just can't use me because I don't have the right words. Jonah's fresh out of Lake Marion after swimming with the walleyes. He's covered in fish vomit, walks into downtown Minneapolis, says repent and believe, and they do. They didn't teach me that evangelism strategy in seminary. I've never seen a church with that kind of evangelism strategy, which means this. Don't be so arrogant as to think that God can't use you because you don't have the words. What kind of tinkerbell God are you serving? I love what Martin Luther said. Martin Luther, he was referring to Balaam's donkey. Do you remember the story in the Old Testament? 
Balaam's donkey, Luther said, if God can speak through an ass, he can speak through me. <laughs> yes! Amen. You say, I know, Pastor, I hear it every week. Watch it! Watch it! The only thing to account for, and Nineveh believed God, is that is the work of God's Word. And here's the second explanation I have. It's the only other explanation I can think of, and that is it's the power of God. The text says that they believed God. In other words, what it doesn't say is, and they believed Jonah. Jonah came in there. He had his speech well rehearsed. I mean, it was squeaky clean, and he had great, great public speaking skills, and he persuaded them. That is not how revival starts. Revival does not start by really good speakers who give really good sermons or really cool musicians that play inspiring music. Do you know when revival starts right here, faith family? When those of us who have experienced the grace of God go in obedience to God with the Word of God, in the power of God, to see faith in God produced in the lives of those we share with. That's revival. And I hope it happens here. I want to be a part of something that we look back on and say, only God could have done that. There is no other explanation for what happened at Berean but God. I can't say, woo, look at Jonah. That's why this happened in Nineveh. No, no, no. All we can say is chapter 3, verse 5, Nineveh believed God. That was a supernatural work of God. It's the only explanation for it. And in this, friend, we see the grace of God again. You say, I don't see the grace of God in verse 4. All I see is a loser who gives an incomplete message. Well, it's right in front of you. Do you see it? Have you, have you seen the grace of God in different ways throughout this book? Like we saw it in a storm, right? God pursuing Jonah. We saw it in a fish. God teaches Jonah that salvation belongs to the Lord. We saw it in chapter 3 earlier when God comes to the guy who's bricked every shot he's ever shot since chapter 1, verse 1, and he comes to him a second time. And now we see it in a warning. A warning? We don't typically think of a warning being an act of grace, do we? We're around warnings all the time, and, and many of them are ridiculous. Like the warning on a microwave that says, do not use to dry pets. <laughs> Seriously? Like what, what really bothers me about that is they feel they have to put that on there. Or the warning on a hair dryer, do not use while sleeping. Or one of my favorites, a warning on a no trespassing sign that says, violators will be shot, survivors will be shot again. <laughs> Listen, I am convinced somebody from my hometown made that sign. <laughs> Only explanation. We are around warnings all the time, and we don't tend to think of a warning being positive. We tend to think of warnings as negative. But you do realize that warnings are actually a loving thing. For instance, when your teacher warns you that you're failing, 
when the doctor warns you of your bad health, when a boss warns you of your poor performance, the intention of that warning is your benefit. It's the same with God. People say, if God knew that he was going to save Nineveh, then why did he warn Nineveh? Answer, God's going to save Nineveh by warning Nineveh, because the warning is an act of grace. It's what wakes you up to see that you're headed in the wrong direction. So how did Nineveh respond to this gift of grace that came in the form of a warning? They responded with repentance. And what I want to give you now is eight signs of genuine biblical repentance. It's what's happening in your life. This will be a great test for you. It is what's happening in your life when God is at work, when the gospel is at work. And I know what you're thinking. You're not listening to me because you're thinking, did he say it eight points? And we're the last service of the day. We're going to be here forever. Put your seatbelt on. Because this is life transforming. If what happened in Nineveh is going to happen here, then this is what needs to happen. And here's the first. Nineveh took God seriously. They took God seriously. Verse 5 says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. Now, You have to picture this in your mind with me. A prophet from an enslaved people walks into the most powerful city of the day and says, 40 days and it's going to be overthrown. Now, you have to understand the way people in the ancient Near East East thought. The way people in the ancient Near East thought was this. Superior nations meant superior gods. Let me put it this way, the reason why we're in power is because our dad can beat up your dad. That's how they thought. So when the word of the Lord comes and says, 40 days and this is going to be overthrown, what the king of Nineveh should have said, naturally speaking, is, why should I listen to your puny God? Do you see? So when the word of the Lord comes to Nineveh, And they respond with, I don't think God's joking. I'm going to take him at his word. We need to see that that's where repentance starts. The word of the Lord comes to you and you believe him. He's not kidding around. And isn't it interesting that the word of the Lord had to come to Jonah twice, but it only had to come to Nineveh once? You know why I think that is? Because it's a whole lot harder to wake people up out of religion than it is to save people out of worldliness. That's why I preach the way I do. It is so hard to wake up sleeping prophets than it is to save wicked cities. And it spreads everywhere. The text tells us that it spreads even to the animals. Like, think about that. You know revival's happening when your Labrador retriever gets saved. (laughs) 
<laughs> revival. I'm not suggesting that's what's happening here. It is a sign of how far spread it was that everybody's taking God's word seriously. And here's what it reminded me of. It reminded me of what happened on American soil in the early 1700s. We call it the Great Awakening. You see, here's why I, I preach this way, and you may sit there and think, he's just wishful thinking. No, I'm not. It happened in America before. It did. I believe it can happen again. I don't care what the polls say. You think I'm basing this on what the polls say? I'm basing this on what God can do. And here's what happened in Northampton in the early 1700s. The parents of the city were very concerned about their teenagers. And do you know what they did? They got together and they prayed. There was a young teenage girl who was very influential in the town, and she began to become very, very convicted about her sin, so she went to talk to a man named Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards shared with her the gospel, and that, little, that teenage girl believed and put her faith in Jesus Christ and repented of her sin. And do you know what happened next? Teenager after teenager after teenager, listen teenagers, after teenager went to talk to Jonathan Edwards, and one after one after one after one repented and put their faith in Jesus. And guess what happened, parents? The teenagers impacted the parents. And before you knew it, the whole place of Northampton was being converted. And listen to how Jonathan Edwards describes what was happening here in America in the 1700s. He says this, A great and earnest concern about the things of God and the eternal world became universal in all parts of town. Imagine that this isn't Northampton. Imagine it's the South Metro. And among persons of all degrees and all ages, and the conversation in all companies and upon all occasions was on these things only, unless so much as necessary, people stopped to carry out their ordinary business. Translation, let's talk about God. I'm amazed at God. What's God doing in your life? I'll have a Big Mac fries, and a Diet Coke. Let's talk about God. What's God doing in your life? They only stopped to talk about God in ordinary business that had to happen. And then what did they do when it was over? Went right back to talking about God. Amen. And then he says, other discourse other than the things of God would scarcely be tolerated in any company. Do we have to talk about Sports Center? Do we really have to talk about who won with Dancing with the Stars? It's a lot less interesting than what we were talking about. Do you see? And then I love this. The minds of the people were wonderfully taken off the world, and it was treated as a thing of very little consequence. The things of this world grew strangely dim. And nobody cared. Because God was what they took serious. And they were consumed in Him. There will be no repentance. There will be no revival until we start with being serious about God. And then here's what flows out of that. Number two. 
is they felt sorrow over their sin. Next phrase, verse 5, they called for a fast and they put on sackcloth. In other words, they did not treat sin as a lapse in judgment. They treated sin as a serious offense to God. You say, how so? Well, sackcloth was a very rough material that you wore for a funeral. Why? Because you were mourning. Do you know what the king is saying here? Weep! Don't eat anything. Don't drink anything. Let all your attention be on brokenness before God. There should be a sorrow for sin because repentance is treating sin like your middle school photos. Do you know, you know, like when you're going through the photo album and you see your eighth grade picture, sorry, eighth graders, and you look at it and you go, ugh. You know what I'm talking about. And somebody's like, here, I want to show that. No, 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 don't you show that to anybody. There's a sense of like, it, it almost disgusts you. I can't believe I had hairspray hair or whatever, you know. It's like, ugh. When is the last time you looked at your sin that way? When is the last time you looked at your sin and said, that disgusts me? I hate this. I hate that I do this. So much so that uh, you abandon all sense of pride, which is what happens next. Because it said that this happened from the greatest of them to the least of them. In other words, here's what's happening. Nobody is saying, I'm still better than she is. That Terry Foss, that dude needs to repent. But me? Fine. In fact... There was so much of an abandoning of pride and an expression of humility. I love this picture. The king comes down off his throne and he gets in the dirt. Isn't that a beautiful picture of humility? There is this sense of, I am nothing, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. The number one roadblock keeping us from repentance is pride. What will people think about me? I've been going to this church for 20 years. I might lose my super Christian status. Repenting people don't care. Because in that moment, they're so serious about God, it brings a sorrow for their sin that they want to be real with who they are. From the king to the least of these. And then here's what happens next. They confess their sins specifically, verse 8 the king says, let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn, here it is, from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Do you see? It got personal. The king doesn't say, hey, everybody get together and let's vaguely and generically confess our sins as a people. All right, God, we don't want judgment. We're sorry. 
No, the king says, I want every person to get specific with the sin in your hands. Why is it that sometimes we say, you know, I'm just not really struggling with anything? You know, or we, we offer these kind of prayers God, if I did anything bad today, forgive me. We pray that. Here, here's my thinking on um, I don't really struggle with anything. Why is it that the Apostle Paul, who God used to write most of the New Testament, greatest missionary, healed people, saw third heaven, whatever that is, and yet said in Romans 7, I do the very thing that I don't want to do, O wretched man and I am I? And we're not struggling with anything? We might just start with repenting of lying to ourselves. Because repentance, true biblical repentance happens when we name specifically our rebellion to God. And while I'm asking questions, let me ask this. Why is it that when someone sins against us, we know every detail? But when we sin against God, yeah, details are kind of fuzzy. There will be no repentance until we, like David in Psalm 32, say this, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Here's what happens next with Nineveh, is they then turn from their sin. Look at that word in verse 8, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn. Turn. Right here, faith family, what the Word of God is saying to us is this. It's one thing to be sorrowful about your sin and hate it, but that's not enough. Repentance translates into this. I don't want to do it anymore. And I want to build things in my life to protect me, and I'm going to pray daily, lead me not into temptation, because I don't want to go there again. The king says, I don't want you just to acknowledge your sin, I want everyone to turn from your sin. Do you remember in the Gospels when Jesus addresses the crowd that was about to stone the woman caught in adultery? Do you remember that? What does Jesus say? We always quote the first half, and rightly so. He says, he who is without sin cast the first stone. We love quoting that, don't we? Right? Who are you to judge me? Right? He who is without a sin cast the first stone. What does Jesus say after that? He looks at the woman and he says, and go and sin no more. It's not enough to just say, I hate my sin, we have to think, how do I build guardrails in my life so that I don't run off the road again? It's like the famous scene in Godfather 3. Do you remember Michael Corleone? He's an older man. He's been haunted by his past and all the things that he's done. He knows the things that he's done, and it's starting to affect him physically. And he finds himself in the presence of a priest. And uh, the priest asked him if he would like to make confession. Now, understand that we as Protestants do not believe that we are to go to a man. We believe that we're called to go to the man. Our priest is Jesus Christ, seated at the right hand of God. Ain't no man going to be able to save you except that man. 
All right? And that's what we believe. But in light of that, I want you to listen specifically to what Michael Corleone says about his confession. Would you like to make your confession? <laughs> your eminence, I'm... I'm uh, it's been so long. I, I would... I wouldn't know where to, uh, it's been 30 years. I'd, I'd, I'd use up too much of your time, I think. I always have time to save souls. Well, I'm, I'm beyond redemption. No, no, no. Potete andare via per due, tre minuti, per favore. Grazie. I hear the confessions of my own priests here. Sometimes the desire to confess is overwhelming, and we must seize the moment. What is the point of confessing if I don't repent? Isn't that good? What's the point of being sorrowful over your sin if you're not going to do anything about it? The king of Nineveh calls for a change in behavior. And yes, I would insert here that only happens by the power of God. We don't have the strength to do that. But nevertheless, we turn and run! In the opposite direction, sounds a lot like Jonah. And notice that they not only turn from their sin, but they turn to God. Oh, get this, get this. It says, call out mightily to God. In other words, the object of genuine repentance is God. I had somebody email me last night after our Saturday night service talking about this very point being paradigm shifting because here's what true repentance is. Right here, right here, right here. You can say, I hate what I'm doing. I don't want to do it anymore so that I can be a better father. I hate what I'm doing. I don't want to do it anymore so I can be a better spouse. I hate what I'm doing. I don't want to do it anymore so I can be a better Christian. Friends, if that's your repentance, then the object isn't God, it's you. Biblical repentance looks like this. I hate what I'm doing. I don't want to do it anymore because I want fellowship with God. He's the object of my repentance. I'm calling out to God. I don't want a daddy award. I want fellowship with my creator. That's repentance. If you're broken over your sin just so you can be better, you don't understand the gospel. Brokenness over our sin leads us to the one who makes us better because of his righteousness. We want Jesus. And then notice 
that biblical repentance, true repentance, understands grace. Do you remember a few weeks ago when I told you that grace is the undeserved gift from an unobligated giver? Do you remember that? Notice how the king of Nineveh responds in verse 9. This was so huge for me. He says, who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. In other words, this, God help us get this. True repentance doesn't expect God to be merciful. Or let me say it this way. Here's how you know you've truly been repentant. You expect justice and you're shocked at grace. And why is that? Because true repentance is acknowledging before God that you agree with God that you don't deserve anything. And if you're using repentance to somehow twist God's arm behind his back to be merciful to you, that's not repentance. Repentance comes before God and says, you should judge me. You should. Maybe, maybe he'll be merciful. Now, we'll answer that in just a moment, but look at the last point of repentance, and this, again, is so helpful, is that they took immediate action. They took immediate action. This is what struck me on the way to church this morning as I was driving. I never let this go. I'm always thinking on the text, and, and God, what do you have here? And here's what popped in my mind. It was verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne. Huh. And here's what hit me right here. Where have I heard that before? That's right. Chapter 1. Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh. Chapter 1. The sailors, arise, sleeper, and pray. Chapter 3 again, arise, loser, I'm giving you a second chance. <laughs> but when the word of the Lord comes to the king of Nineveh, his immediate response was he arose. Right here. He did not wait to the 39th day of a 40-day warning to repent. Because repentance never waits for a more opportune time. You don't say, I'm going to take out my calendar and I'm going to write it in. This Thursday at 3 o'clock, I'm going to repent. Repentance is the immediate reaction between the head-on collision of your sin and God's Word. Now, you probably feel at this point, because this has been heavy, but good, you, I hope. I'm a little biased. This feels negative. Pastor, the way you're making me feel is that I haven't made any progress in my Christian life. Go home with this. Repentance is the progress in the Christian life. There is no repairing your heart without the surgery. There is no conformity to Jesus without repentance. So why has it been 10 years since you've done so? 
Repentance is not going backwards. Repentance is going forward. It's what brings grace into our life. It's what gets us back on the right road. That's a good thing. It's what brings freedom so you don't have to be fake anymore. Repentance is a gift. It's a good thing. Yeah, in our culture it feels negative, but in the kingdom of God, it is a blessing to be called to repent. That's why it's everywhere in the Bible. You do realize that, right? Old Testament to Revelation, repent, 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 repent. It's everywhere. Why? Because you don't outgrow it. So I ask you, do you want the Twin Cities to experience what Nineveh experienced? Do you? Do you? Then repent. I apologize, our pastor just misspoke. What he meant to say was if you want the Twin Cities to repent, then we need to pray that the Twin Cities will repent. That is not what I said. Because before repentance would come to Nineveh, it had to come to Jonah. This book wasn't written to Ninevites. The book of Jonah was written to Israelites who in their religiosity had fallen asleep. And before Nineveh will hear the word of the Lord, religious prophets will have to be woken up from their spiritual slumber. Do not expect repentance out there until we experience repentance in here. Now I ask you, do you want to have happen in the Twin Cities what happened in Nineveh? And if we did, how would God respond? And we close with this, verse 10. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. It just, guys, I don't, I don't get it. Like it's at this point in the story, I'm just like, do I really understand your love, God, that receives the repentance of Ninevites? At some level, like Jonah, that ought to bother us. But at every level, it ought to amaze us. That no matter what road of sin you've gone down, dear friend, the only road back is repentance. And do you know who is standing right in the middle of that road? A father with wide open arms ready to receive you. And here's what I know this morning. Here's what I know. God is a whole lot more ready to receive you than you are to repent. Jonah, God may it be, a Jewish prophet who faces the wrath of God in the sea, swallowed by a fish grave, is spit out on the third day, and he takes the word of the Lord to all the way to a city called Nineveh. 
And that's awesome, isn't it? Isn't that awesome? But I got something that's even more awesome. Jesus, a Jewish prophet, the very Son of God, faced the wrath of God on the cross, and he was swallowed by a grave, but he was spit out on the third day, and he took the word of the Lord to his disciples, and he said, all authority is mine, so go, take the word of the Lord, and make disciples of all nations. And do you know what happened? The word of the Lord didn't just reach Nineveh, it reached Minnesota. Why? Why did the word of the Lord reach Minnesota? I'll tell you why. So that we would get down off our thrones and take off our robes of self-righteousness and turn from our evil ways and experience right here a revival of God's saving grace. And the world will say, that's over-repenting. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, the beggars, the spiritually bankrupt. Why? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why did the word of the Lord reach your ears this morning? So that what happened in Nineveh would happen here. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Let's pray. God, we pray for it, we plead for it, but only you can do it. Only you can do it. Nineveh believed God. It was a supernatural work. God, you don't have to. You're not obligated to. Quite honestly, you shouldn't. But would you do that here? Would you do that here? Would what happened in Nineveh happen at Berean? In Jesus' name, amen.